This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, and if you're new today, we are just kind of walking through the book of Romans, uh, verse by verse and chapter through cha- by chapter, and uh, we have come now to Romans 9, and Romans 9 through 11 really form a, a new unit in the book of, of Romans, and you kind of the flow of the letter, chapters 9 through 11 are just kind of one of those distinct units within the book. And so let's look this morning at chapter 9 and verses 1 through 13, and kind of the, the hinge that, that not only this text, but really all of Romans 9 through 11, a hinge that really it turns on is found in Romans 9, 6, which says the word of God has not failed. We see in these chapters that God is faithful to his people and to his promises. So let's take a look at it together. Um, Chapter 9, and let's look at the first 11 verses of that. If you would stand in honor of God's word as we look at it together. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we prepare to, to enter into this, this new section of, of Romans uh, that is such an incredible part of your word and such a, a deep and, and thought-provoking part of your word, we pray the old prayer that uh, brothers and sisters in Christ many years ago prayed, and it is this, Lord, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. 
what we are not, please make us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I remember um, growing up and, and going to, to, to different pools. And, um, you know, when you're a little kid, there's always a fascination with the deep end of the pool because that's where all the big kids are. And so I can remember being, going to pools and, you know, you're, you're kind of, you look down at the deep end and all the big kids are down there and you're kind of fascinated by it because you want to kind of be down there in the deep end with the big kids, but you're kind of scared of the deep end <laughs> at the same time. And I think a lot of believers are like that when it comes to, to Romans 9 through 11 because we're intrigued by the, the deep waters of these chapters, um, but at the same time, it can be sort of intimidating. And so as we prepare to kind of dive into these deep waters of Romans 9 through 11, I want us to think about a couple of principles that maybe will help us relax a little bit. First of all, God inspired hard text for a reason. Um, every text is in the Bible because God had it put there for a purpose. And so we shouldn't shy away from hard texts. They're there because God wants them there. And then also we have to understand that there are always going to be things where there are certain, um, there's a certain amount of, of mystery. And that's because God is awesome. And God is huge. God is majestic. God is infinite. And our, our thinking is very finite. So there's always going to be a certain amount of, of mystery to many things in God's word. In fact, what does Paul himself say at the end of chapter 11, after God reveals these things to him and he's put all these things down in paper, what does Paul say at the end of chapter 11 and verses 33 and following? He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And Paul here at the end of chapter 11 is saying basically the same thing that God says about himself in Isaiah 55 and verses 8 and 9 where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So listen. We have to learn to live with the fact we are creatures, not the creator. And we have got this awesome, majestic, huge, sovereign God. And it is, we cannot put him in a box. We cannot control him. We cannot minimize him. And, and there is always going to be, because God is infinite and our minds are, are finite, I mean, there's always going to be things where, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that now we see through a mirror dimly. Um, and so, you know, if we, if we think that we're going to emerge from Romans 9 through 11 with all the answers, uh, probably need to temper our expectations a little bit, right? If we think that we're going to emerge from this section thinking, oh, you know, I've got that whole thing about election all figured out, got all the answers, 
Or if we think, you know what, I know all the details of the future of Israel. Eh, probably not. Um, you know, in fact, I don't really think it would be healthy to emerge thinking that we've got it all figured out. What we should expect, though, is that God would use this part of his word to humble us, to make us walk more humbly before him, to see him um, in the majesty of his character and his faithfulness to his promises. And I hope we'll see that today. God's word has not failed. So what do we see here in this, this first part of chapter 9? The first thing that we see in this chapter is a broken heart. Paul's broken heart. He says in verses 1 through 3, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's talking here about his fellow Jews, most of whom had not embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and Paul's heart is broken for them. He is burdened for them. Now, we might ask, why, in given the flow of Romans, you know, we just went through chapter 8 where we see all of these incredible promises of the gospel, why does Paul suddenly shift gears here at the beginning of chapter 9 and start talking about Jewish people? Well, if you understand kind of the context of the book of Romans, it makes perfect sense. Because one of the themes that runs throughout the letter is that uh, Paul is trying to help the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers who are both together in the church at Rome. He's trying to help them do life together and understand one another. You've got Gentiles in that church who were coming out of paganism, but yet their, their Christian faith emerges kind of out of Judaism, and they're trying to figure out what that means. And then you had uh, Jewish followers of Jesus in the church at Rome, and one of the things that they're trying to make sense of is why most of their relatives had not embraced Jesus as the Messiah as they had. That's one of the things that Paul is, is dealing with here in this, in this text. But we can see the, the rejection of, of, of most of his fellow Jews, of Jesus as the Messiah, is a deep source of pain in Paul's life. I mean, look at the language that he uses here in verse 2. I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. His heart is broken for his fellow Jews. You know, I think about um, the mother of, of Augustine. Augustine ended up being probably the most prominent theologian in the first 1,000 years of the church. But as a, as a young man, Augustine was, was lost. He was, he was, uh, he was, he was kind of, he was brilliant but he was wild, he was sexually promiscuous, and he was, just, he was just lost. But he had a godly mother, Monica. And Monica prayed for her son. She prayed so faithfully for his salvation. Uh, Tear-filled prayers for her son's salvation. 
And one day Monica was um, talking to her pastor, a man named Ambrose, and they were, they were praying for Augustine's salvation. And Monica is just weeping as they are praying for the, the salvation of her son. And when they finished praying, uh, her pastor said to her, uh, it, 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 it cannot, surely the son of, so many, of someone with so many tears will not perish. In other, in other words, Ambrose believed that, that God was going to answer the tear-filled prayers of his mother and save her son, and he did. And God not only transformed Augustine's life, but used him as one of the most impactful believers in, in the history of the church. Ask God to give you a burden for the lost people in your life. It could be a wayward son or daughter. It could be somebody else in your family. It could be somebody that you go to school with, someone that you, you, you work with, someone in your, your extended family or a neighbor, somebody that's kind of within your circle of influence, but they don't know Jesus. Ask God to give you a heart of love and compassion for them and pray for their salvation because God can do things in the lives of people that we simply can't do. I think about William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and uh, one time he, he sent a couple of workers out to, to go start a new work in, in, a, in a new city. And so they, they went out and they're trying to get this, uh, this new work planted and established in this new place. And they just, they keep encountering, uh, you know, obstacles and uh, roadblock after roadblock. And, and, and they rode back to William Booth and they said, can you please give us an evangelistic strategy? And William Booth wrote back two words, try tears. Try tears. Because what he was saying is that it begins with compassion, with, with, with a, a brokenness for those who who need the Lord. Ask God to give you that for the people in your life that need Jesus. So we see here in verses 1 through 3 a broken heart. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see basically this question. What are you doing with your privileges? What are you doing with your privileges? Look at what Paul says about um, his fellow Jews in verses 4 and 5. He says, They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul here in verses 4 and 5 is pointing to the fact that, that Jewish people had been given enormous spiritual advantages. I mean, while the rest of the world was kind of wallowing, you know, in paganism and in, in idol worship, God had, had, had set apart the Jewish people and revealed himself to them. 
Um, And he had kind of taken them as his own. He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He had given them leaders. He had given them patriarchs. He had given them the prophets. He gave them his law to show them how to live. He taught them how he was to be properly worshipped as the one true God. I mean, and most of all, above everything, Jesus is born into a Jewish family. Jesus came not only as Lord of the world, but also as Israel's Messiah. And so Paul is pointing to the fact here that um, Jewish people had been given enormous spiritual privileges, but... You know, one of the things that, and you can imagine Paul doing this. What's the first thing Paul would do when he went into a new city? He would go to the synagogue, right? And so he would start preaching to his fellow Jews. Well, you can hear him preaching here in verses 4 and 5. Paul would go into the synagogues and he would say, Look, look at the spiritual privileges that we have been given. But what have we done with our privileges? You know, if you were born into a Christian family then you were born with enormous spiritual privileges. If you were born into a family uh, with parents, and we, you know, we just experienced the, the beauty of parent-child dedication where a, a couple was saying, I mean, we, we, we desire by God's grace to raise our child and know and love Jesus. If, if you were born into a family like that, what an incredible privilege that is. On top of that, you know, for us, if you were born into a Christian family in the United States of America with all of the privileges, all the, 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 the freedom and the wealth and the, the privileges that we enjoy in, in America. Oh, friends, Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is it, it's expected. You know, what, what have we done with the privileges that we have Have our privileges led us to a vibrant walk with God? What are you doing with your privileges? Third, God has no grandchildren, just children. God has no grandchildren, just children. Godly lady named Corey Tinboom once made that statement. And we'll see what she was talking about as we go through here. Verses 6 and 7. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So what Paul is saying here is that just because you were born into a Jewish family, and you can hear him saying this in the synagogues, just because you were born into a Jewish family does not mean that you have a ticket to heaven. You know, just because you, have, you, were, you, were, uh, you, were, you were born into a Jewish family does not mean that you have a real relationship with God, that you're saved. Because the sort of the elephant that's lurking in the room in a lot of Paul's ministry is, you know, what about all of these unsaved Jews? And, and in a way, Paul is saying here, look, 
God never promised that every individual Israelite was going to be saved. And we see that even in the Old Testament, don't we? Because what do we see in the Old Testament? I mean, we see, we see some Israelites who are very faithful and who humbly trust God and they're seeking to walk in trust and obedience before God. But then we see other Israelites in the Old Testament that are wicked and they don't care anything about God. And they're worshiping idols, including some of Israel's kings who are not only worshiping idols themselves, but leading their people to worship idols. I mean, so obviously, you know, people like Ahab were not saved. And so Paul is just, Paul is saying here, look, in, in a way, this is nothing new. Because God never promised that just because you were born Jewish, that you're, you've got some, you know, automatic uh, ticket to, to heaven. Um, people are saved by grace, not by race. And we must each as individuals respond to God's grace through repentance and faith, turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus. Again, many of us in this room had the privilege of, of being born into Christian families. But friend, if that's you, I want you to understand something. Nobody gets saved because of their parents' faith. Your parents cannot believe for you. They cannot repent and believe for you. Each of us has to take ownership of our own faith. That's got to become real for us. It could be that for some of our students, God's going to do that at camp this week. But this is not just for students. This is for everybody. Each of us as an individual must turn to the Savior and trust in Him. We, we, we don't get saved by proxy or through the faith of our parents. God doesn't have grandchildren, just children. Now, what Paul is going to do here in the latter part of verse 7 through verse 13, is he's going to give a couple of illustrations from the Old Testament. And the first illustration has to do with Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael. Let's look um, at uh, the latter part of verse 7 through verse 9. He says, But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So <clears throat> the situation here is that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah um, that they were going to have a son and that God's purposes, his promises for Israel were going to flow through that son. But what happened? Abraham and Sarah get to be far beyond the age of childbearing. And so they say, hey, this trusting God thing isn't working out too well for us. We're going to do it our own way. And it was a really twisted 
distorted way. Because at Sarah's suggestion, uh, Abraham goes into one of her servants, Hagar, and gets her pregnant. And so she gives birth to Ishmael. And so Abraham and Sarah say to God, hey, look, God, we've done it our way. Here's, we have a son now. Uh, uh, you know, Ishmael is going to be the son of the promise. And God says, I don't think so. We're not going to do it your way. It's going to happen my way. And, and God says, I'm going to come back again next year. And Sarah is going to have a son. And she did. It was Isaac. And so Isaac, not Ishmael, was the the son of the promise. The line of promise was going to be carried out through Isaac and not Ishmael. The second illustration that he gives here is Jacob and Esau. And we see that uh, beginning in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So the deal with Rebecca is that she gives birth to these twin boys. And um, Esau comes out first, so technically, he was the older one, and traditionally, the, you know, the, the line of promise would have been continued through the older son, through Esau. But God comes along and he says, we're not going to do it by your traditions. <laughs> we're going to do it my way. <laughs> um, I'm the one making the calls here. And my line of, the line of my promise in this case, is not going to flow through the older, but through the younger. Not through Esau, but through Jacob. And listen, his choice of Jacob had nothing to do with any virtue on, on Jacob's part. Um, because when, if you read Genesis and you, you read the story of Jacob, the guy is a rascal. You know, from moment one, he, he's, he's conniving, he, he, he's deceptive. I mean, he's like this throughout his boyhood and, and into, into young adulthood. I mean, the, the, guy, the guy, you, you want to strangle him sometimes. So it, his choice of Jacob was not because, you know, he foresaw any virtue on Jacob's part. No, he, he made this choice before they were even born. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, British pastor, once said, I, I know that God had to choose me before I was born because he certainly wouldn't have chosen me after I was born. And, and that, was, that was definitely the case with Jacob. And, and that's, that's really the case with, with all of us. Salvation is all of grace. It's grace. It's God mer God's mercy. It's not because of anything in us. It's because of his sheer grace and mercy. John Stott says this, The wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, 
In neither case is God unjust. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. And we'll explore that even more deeply um, next week. But let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 really throws us sometimes because we're not familiar with Hebrew idioms and the way that they work. So verse 13 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what Paul is doing here in verse 13 is he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Malachi 1. And what throws us here is the word hate, but Esau I hated. But what we need to understand is this is a Hebrew idiom. And so the word hate is an idiom for preference. And so essentially God is saying, you know, I chose Jacob and not Esau. He's not saying, God's not saying I I had emotional hate for for Esau, the way that we would use hate in modern English. Okay, it's very very different. Um, Jesus does this, for instance, um, in Luke 14 and verse 26. Jesus says there, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So so Jesus here is, is using the word hate as an idiom for choice. Obviously, he's not advocating that we hate our families, okay? Um, what, he, what Jesus is saying here <clears throat> is that we must prefer God to any other relationship in our lives. We have to choose to follow Jesus, and that relationship with Jesus has to supersede every other relationship in our lives, even family relationships. The relationship with him is number one, most important. And if that relationship is not right, no other relationship can work. That's, that's the way that he's using the word hate here um, in Luke 14. So um, it's just, it works the same way here um, in Romans 9, uh, 13, which comes from Malachi 1. Um, when he talks about uh, Esau, I hated, what it's saying there is that God is saying, I, 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 chose, I chose Jacob and not Esau. Now, <clears throat> when we think about um, God's choosing here, in, 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 in the original context of these stories, the point that's being made is not that God chose um, Isaac and not Ishmael to be saved, or that he chose Jacob and not Esau to be saved. That's not what the stories are about. They are about God's line of promise, right? God, is, God chose to fulfill his line of promise and his purposes for Israel through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau. But this does have bearing on the issue of personal salvation because of where Paul is headed, and in, in, in particularly in chapter 11, where he's going to make the point that even though most Jewish people are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, that God has preserved a remnant, a remnant of believing Jews. 
And the reason that they believe, as he says in Romans 11:5, is that they are chosen by grace, right? Just like the reason that we believe is because we're chosen by grace. Listen, yes, we choose Jesus, but I want to tell you, none of us would have ever made that decision unless he first chose us. Why? Because Ephesians 2.1 says that our natural state as sinners is that we are dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Now, let me ask you, what can a corpse do? What can a corpse do? Absolutely nothing. But praise God, we have a God who specializes in raising the dead. And so Ephesians 2 and verses 4 and 5 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But listen, God doesn't raise people from the dead spiritually in a vacuum. He does that through the proclamation of the gospel. God calls people to himself. God raises people from the dead spiritually through the proclamation of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. That means that we have to share the gospel. Um, we talked a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter um, 8 about the fact, you know, that in, that in the Bible, I mean, we see lots of passages about God's sovereignty and about God's choosing, and we see that here in chapter 9. But then we talked about the fact that we see lots of other passages about human responsibility, about our responsibility uh, to choose, that we make choices, and they're real choices, and we're held accountable for our choices. And that means that we're responsible to repent and believe in the gospel, and it means that those of us who are believers are accountable to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. Right? So in chapter 10, we're going to see that side of it. And we're going to see the emphasis on human responsibility. Look at chapter 10 and verses 13 and following. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, have you called upon the name of the Lord? I don't mean just praying, praying a prayer when you get in trouble. I mean, have you called upon the name of the Lord to save you? To, to, have you given your life to him? Have you turned to him in repentance and in faith? That's what calling upon the name of the Lord means. Have you done that? Friend, if, if, you were, if you were within my hearing today and you're not a believer, call upon the name of the Lord. Turn to Jesus, trust him, welcome him into your life as your savior. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This chapter begins with Paul's broken heart for the lostness of people. Do we have a burden for the lost? 
What lengths are we willing to go to? What risks are we willing to take to rescue the perishing? You know, the past few weeks, the attention of the world was riveted to those boys that were in that cave in Thailand. And having recently come back from Thailand, it especially got my attention. And it was just such a, it was such a graphic thing. I mean, just to think about the, these, these boys these, that, that are in the darkness of this cave and, and separated from light and from their loved ones by these narrow uh, passages of, of water. I mean, it was graphic to even think about. And, and then uh, we heard about this brave uh, Thai uh, uh, Navy, uh, Navy SEAL who gave his life trying to go and rescue them. And then we heard about the rescue and, and them uh, coming out one by one. But, you know, th- that whole story just really prompted me to reflect and to pray about this beginning in my own life. You know, we, we were burdened for these boys, but how burdened are we for the people who are lost spiritually all around us every day? for our lost family members and our lost friends and the lost people that we go to school with and lost people that we work with. I mean, how, how burdened are we for, for them because they are in darkness and, and they are, are separated not just from the outside world, they're separated from God and if they die that way, they're going to be eternally separated from God Oh, brothers and sisters, should grip our hearts. May God give us a burden for lost people. John 15 and and verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you're here today, and you're unsaved, I want to tell you something. Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. He took your sins upon himself on that cross and bled and died for them and was raised to life and reigns as king and is coming again as king. And one day you will stand before him and he will either be your savior or your judge. Turn to him now as your savior. And if you are saved, what are you doing to reach your friends and your family members who are unsaved? What sacrifices are you willing to make? What lengths are you willing to go to? What risks are you willing to take? Jesus laid down his life to come for us when we were lost. Are we willing to to open our mouths and be a little uncomfortable and talk to people about Jesus? Those boys were rescued. It was amazing when we saw that. We were rescued. We kept hearing about one and then another was rescued. One by one by one. Who's your one? Who's your one? 
People come to Christ as individuals. Who's your one? Who is one person in your life that you are going to pray for and ask God to give you a brokenhearted burden for and that you're going to share with? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We, we thank you that you loved us so much that you came for us when we were lost, when we were trapped in sin and separated from you, that you came for us at great cost and that you laid down your life so that we could be rescued. Father, we pray that you would give us a passion for those who are spiritually lost all around us. Give us passion, give us compassion, love for them, mercy for them, as you have shown mercy for us, sheer undeserved grace. Lord, fill us with, 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 with gospel love, with gospel grace for those who are lost. And use us use us in a great way. Father, I pray that you use these students this week. I pray that you would use every adult in this room to make an impact for you with those who need Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. It could be that you're here in this room this morning and you need Jesus and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you to give your life to Christ. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. I want to invite you to come. I'm going to be right here at the front. Our other pastors will, will be here. We would love to come alongside and talk with you and, and pray with you. We're here for you. We'll be here after our service today. Don't leave here without sharing what, what, what God is doing in your life. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about, about uniting with our church family and saying, I, 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 want to, I want to serve and minister in the context of this family of brothers and sisters, and we want to invite you. If you're here with just a a need for prayer. We want to invite you to come or our altar is open for you to pray. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. 
We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.